0: Are you a success-driven, highly-motivated parent? Or working 9-5 to five from paycheck to paycheck? Maybe you're a business owner or entrepreneur juggling both career and school drop-offs? Or are a stay-at-home mum or dad who hold the fort for the entire family? Well, my friend, this one's for you. Kira, and welcome to the High-Performing Parent Podcast. I'm your host, Y crystal Clear, a recovering, overachieving workaholic mum to an entrepreneur and coach, with multiple certificates, a degree and a diploma, all collecting dust at the back of my closet. On this podcast, we will discuss all things from high-performing to hardship and growth from mindset, personal development, science, research-based evidence, holistic practices and so much more. The impact it has on the individual and their families, including health, wealth, career and relationships. Sharing with you real-life stories and advice on how to reach your highest potential whilst improving generational cycles. Are you ready to make change for the next generations? They're counting on you. Hey team, I am so bloody excited to have a amazing human on this podcast episode with us today. We have Lisa Westgate. She is a ex-paramedic and now she's seguated into the personal development space with over seven years experience and she teaches around trauma-informed coaching and she is the creator of the Misfit Hub. You can find Lisa on misfithub.com and she has an amazing Facebook group that I invite you to join. I'm so excited to have you with us today, Lisa. Thank you for coming on. You are amazing. Thanks for having me. Excited to uh, have this chat. Awesome. Lisa, I wanted to just start off with you sharing a little bit about your story in the um, health professional area, and then just segwaying through
1: your journey with mental health sure Um, so it, it was uh a long time in the health profession so working backwards i um was an ambulance paramedic here in victoria in australia um for 11 years on paper um before my the sort of like the end of that um And prior to that, I was doing um, patient transport, so like non-emergency ambulance, taking people to appointments, that sort of thing. Uh, And before that, I worked in an emergency department in one of Melbourne's major hospitals where my dad was a doctor. So sort of uh, in my late teens, early 20s. Um, got a job there, sort of like a an orderly kind of role, so mm-hmm. just like cleaning the beds and delivering lunches to people and so one of those like healthcare-adjacent roles um, and that was before I even started uni or knew that I was going to end up um, as a paramedic. Um, so I come from a medical family. My dad's a doctor, my uncle's a doctor. Uh, Mum was in the medical field before she... Um, Stop working to become a full-time mum for myself and my brother. Um, So it was. It was kind of. It was that was the conversation in our house. So Mm -hmm. when I look back, um, it's not really a surprise that I ended up in healthcare. Um, And I wanted to be a doctor from the time I was six, but then Year Eleven chemistry got the better of me, and (laughs) I uh, I had to bail out. So I didn't have the prerequisites for medicine straight out of school. Um, But I wouldn't. I wouldn't really change you know yeah. the way things fell um I think it was all you know this is the way it was meant to turn out so I've got I've got no issues about it I don't I think now particularly in these modern times I'm probably really grateful that um I'm not a doctor because they're under a lot of pressure
0: yes so true so true so 11 years wow long time tell me how I guess you seguated through that of in of ending up going through mental health and leaving that chapter?
1: Yeah. So my career ended with a diagnosis of PTSD, anxiety and depression. Um, myself, everyone around me, including the doctors um, assumed that my uh, mental health challenges were from my job. Um, obviously we do see some terrible things as people like to, to ask. Um, of course we do. And, uh, As I unpacked my mental health and I started working out, you know, what had led to this, what was going on, uh, it became apparent pretty quickly that, uh, as it is for many people, my PTSD in particular was not um, one cause. There was a lot of, it's a bit like making a soup. You know, there's a lot of few things that go go into it. So for me, of course, it was my ambulance career, you know, and elements within that. Um, it was also, um, you know, as I mentioned to you before, you know, being a, a, a dual rape survivor. So I was raped at 19 and 22 again, long story. Um, and also intergenerational trauma, which, you know, I know is a, a huge thing, particularly for um Migrant communities and Indigenous communities. Um, So my four grandparents are all Holocaust survivors. Wow. And um, came out to Australia. We were like post-war boat people Mm -hmm. and I'm first generation Australian. So that brings with it, you know, stuff in your DNA, stuff in your cells um, and also behavioural issues, you know. So I I definitely had um, two out of those four grandparents were probably Really, more affected, um, and that was sort of one on either side, one you know, one on dad's side, one on mum's side. So, both my parents had experienced living with a parent mm-hmm. that had some had had first hand experience of pretty significant trauma, and they'd grown up in that environment, and then that absolutely affects how they parented, um, which was of course to the best of their ability. Um, and that then affected, you know, how, how I was raised and what values were instilled in us and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, it, it really is a, a mishmash of things. You know, I think any one of those can absolutely create challenges with people's wellbeing and mental health. You know, go, growing up with, with people who've experienced trauma in your household, mm. um, that, that can be enough on its own. Yeah. um they did some research I know someone did some pretty great research about um the um the rates of PTSD in children of Vietnam veterans is higher than the uh general population um even though they weren't the ones that went to war just growing up with someone who's gone through trauma in your household can it can raise your risk of developing things like PTSD and anxiety and depression so you know I had that and then I had my you know sexual assault and then just to just to make sure (laughs) I went and did a paramedic career for over a decade so really the way I see it looking back now with hindsight um is you know I wasn't really going to get out of it without PTSD you know it really was the perfect storm to create the mental health challenges um, and I, I was in that storm probably for about two years, um, but I didn't know it for at least a year and a half. So, again, looking back, I think I was probably at work for 12 to 18 months longer than I should have been. Mm. Um, but I wasn't really aware of what was going on. Um, I certainly didn't have language around it. Yeah. And... Um, you know I was the at that time I was the primary breadwinner for our family and so that's a lot of pressure of you know you can't just not go to work because you don't feel like it like that's not an option
0: yeah
1: um so even though I knew I didn't want to I didn't feel like it I kind of lost my mojo my my previously very compassionate mindset um, you know people call us in crisis they ring that emergency number because they need us All oh, that really waned <laughs> mm. and I was really irritable and I didn't want to go to people calling us for stupid shit and you know <laughs> my tolerance for that dropped with my compassion yeah. and I was just really very easily irritated mm. um and, and that was sort of the beginning signs that like even I couldn't ignore anymore that like, okay, well, that's, you can't think that about a patient, you know, like that's not okay. Um, and then that's what sort of led to a few phone calls and, and me saying, listen, I really want to punch the next person that, you know, calls us for this in the face And a colleague of mine was like, Yeah, that's not okay. You need to ring someone. (laughs) And I was like, Really? And he's like, No, no, I get it, but it's not okay. And I was like, Oh, all right. So, um, yeah, I'm like, You know, it's pretty justified. But um, of course, you know, that was my. thinking at the time um so yeah that led to a few phone calls and then ultimately the end of my career because uh you know management sort of got wind of where I was at and said you know you you got to go get signed off um by a psychiatrist or whoever they said um before you can come back to work and um I've been stubborn since birth and I said fuck you I'm not seeing a shrink (laughs) that was my response Um, but then what I did realize was that things were not all good in the hood. Like I really did need to take stock and go, okay, well, this is something is going on. Um, and I insisted on doing it my way and, and going through that healing my way, which was not wanting to see a psychiatrist, not wanting to go on any more medication, not wanting to talk about my shit over and over again. Um, and working out a way for me to heal away from that medical model because that just didn't resonate at all with me
0: oh my gosh (laughs) you just said so many amazing gems in there I was just like I need to touch on everything but oh I first of all want to um just I guess throw it back to you on being a health professional in the medical Mm -hmm. model and not wanting to do the medical model I have a lot of. clients who are health professionals that also think the same way can you just give us a little bit more on your I guess your thinking and then how you migrated through your own healing
1: yeah it's a great question I think it's there's so many layers to it really Mm. you know we to some extent once you've been in that industry can I say for a while you do see it's like um in the theater you know everyone else sees on what's on stage Mm. and we see what's behind the curtain you know and and we see people burnt out and we see people who are jaded and bitter and you know and so we know that for I don't know probably the majority of my lifetime like before me experiencing that directly I was certainly aware of that through my dad as well is that the system tends to run on thin threads you know everyone I mean people love their work and they love why they're there and we're very driven by passion mm-hmm. um and uh, and we're compelled to help make people's lives better that's why we're there and at the same time we're exhausted and drained and the shifts are crazy and you don't get your meal breaks. And, and so the whole system really runs on so much goodwill Mm. um, of the individuals involved that I think when we need help, even if we recognize that we need help, there's a couple of things that happen. One is there's a lot of shame because we're the healers, we're the helpers. Like when people call that emergency number, I show up, right? Like I'm, I'm the hero. I'm the like, da, 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 you know, I'm here to fix things. So it, there's, there's shame involved in asking for help. And I work with a lot of um, emergency services professionals, police and, and nurses and doctors. And to be the one on the other side of the equation can be really confronting. You know, and I'm sure a lot of a lot of doctors and nurses are listening are going to be nodding, right? Like we we make we're really bad patients, yeah, right? We're not good at being the one lying in bed having soup delivered to us. We're like, no, no, I got it, you know, like just (laughs) so there's it clashes with how we define our identity, Mm. and so that is a really big hurdle, particularly in needing help in terms of mental health um because our identity is very superhero our identity is the healer the savior the helper that's my role and so if I can't do that and I'm the one that needs help it's a complete identity reversal and that's for a lot of people that's a really big obstacle so I, I think that's an element to it I also think that the other really key thing about us being really shit at asking for help and accepting help, even when it's offered, is like saying yes and letting it in. Is this kind of warped thinking? Like you've got to keep in mind that people in this situation are not thinking clearly, right? So they're looking through a warped lens. That's how they're approaching this. Uh, I certainly was. The other, the other key sort of um, poor logic thinking is this idea that we are burdening whoever's helping us with our shit, right? So for I'll give you an example. I work, Like I said, I work with a lot of police and they have done a lot of training, right? So they spend months and months doing their training and soldiers are the same, right? And then they they knew what they were doing. They've been trained for the role. They've been given all the resources and the skill sets to deal with it. And then they find themselves, you know, a few years down the line or something happens and they're not coping. And the thought process goes, well, if I'm the one with the training and the skills and the experience and I'm not coping with this, then I'm certainly not going to give it to somebody underqualified who doesn't know what I do, Who de- like I'm the most equipped to deal with this and I'm not, I'm not managing so anyone that I hand this over to and go, here, here's my problem. You know, I can't stop thinking about this job or this flashback or this nightmare or whatever. We The, the thought is I'm going to just dump that into their lap and then they're going to be like way more fucked up over it than I am because they don't even have the training or skills that I do. So there's this reluctance to burden our helpers, so whether that's a psychologist or a healer or whoever you go to, um, and I think that's why it's really important if you're working with particularly healthcare or emergency services people in this space, is it's very important for your client to have absolute conviction that you've got good boundaries, that you've got good self-care practices, so that they can trust that they're not burdening you and you can handle it. You've got a way to to manage it or you've got your, you know, methods, whether you, you know, you white light or you go grounding or you, you know, exercise at the gym, you know, whatever it is as a carer, as a healer, they need to know that you've got this and you can handle whatever they're going to dump in your lap because otherwise they'll withhold it until they believe that you can, okay, it's safe to give this to you and it's not going to damage you. Right, because that's again, it's the opposite of their role.
0: <laughs> you oh, know, man. our
1: roles is to make people's lives better. Yeah. So yeah. putting us in a position where we're like, I think this might fuck you up. Like, we don't, we don't want to do that. Yes. Right? Like, oh my gosh, totally,
0: totally resonate with everything that you said. Because same thing in my situation, it was like that burden, that shame, that guilt of um, navigating that system that I was already in, helping all these other people, and it was like, oh. I don't want to be the one that says, hey, it's me. I need help when I'm the one here supposed to be helping.
1: Yeah. And you know that the whole system is stretched. Like, you know, we're in it. We're super aware that everyone's working long shifts and everyone's, you know, missing dinner with families. And, you know, and then you're like, oh, I'm just going to add to the pile (laughs) with my stuff. When at the same time, I should, which is the worst word in the English language, be able to handle it myself, you know? So Mm -hmm. it is a very layered um, scenario That's that kind of we can convince ourselves that it's better for everybody if we hold back, if we just keep it to ourselves, if we deal with it, you know, I'll sort it out or push it down or use drugs or alcohol or drive fast or gamble or, you know, I'll Mm. numb myself out in other ways because that's better. It's a real like... It's where the hero becomes the martyr, you know, is like, but if I sacrifice myself, that's one person lost, mm. as opposed to making all these other people's lives harder. Mm. But it's important to recognise that, again, it's false logic, right? It, it's, it's incorrect thinking that actually leads to that because the truth is that if you get the right help like you're not just helping yourself you're helping your family you're helping your colleagues you're helping your friends because you thinking no no I've got it it's all good I've pushed it (laughs) down no one's ever gonna find this right we're never as good at that as we think we are like people know and they can see it and it affects them totally
0: oh my gosh yes I love that. Um, I wanted to just go back and touch base on where or how did you navigate? Where did you, I guess, start your navigation of your healing journey? So, and where are you
1: now? Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, I think (laughs) you've asked me that three times. No, no, no. Look, ultimately, ultimately, um, I spent sort of three or four months on the couch, you know, thinking about the job that I did and how many babies I helped bring into the world and, Mm. how you know, how many lives I've saved and all that sort of stuff and was very backwards focused in this is who I was and now who am I and I'd lost that and uh, so I sort of really, really immersed myself in the wallowing um, for for three or four months and then my son was, my youngest was two uh, when I sort of got taken off road at work or like I can't work anymore. Um, He was two. And then my eldest, eldest step kids were 12 and 14. And watching them kind of, you know, get ready for school and get ready for their day. And that was sort of happening around me in the space. Um, And my amazing husband was like running the show, but I was, super disengaged like I wasn't connected to what they were doing it was it was like I was in the eye of a storm and I was stagnant and they were whizzing around mm. you know just living life and doing the things that they needed to do so four months was kind of long enough for me to go okay well this is not sustainable <laughs> the first few weeks I was like whoo, having a rest great <laughs> on holidays um but, yeah, a few months in, I was like, this is, for me, this is not a life to, to sit around and watch Netflix or, you know, whatever it is. Um, at um, 34 I was when I got put on a disability pension. Um, this is not okay. So at the time I wasn't suicidal and I was thinking about my life and I was like, well, if I have another, I'd been suicidal earlier. Yeah, And, um If I have another 34 years, let's say I'm 34 now. Let's say I have another 34 years. That gets me to 68. I'm not going to spend the next 34 years on the fucking couch. Like I've got to get up, do something. So my primary motivator was not so much I want to be over there. That's where I want to head to. I had no idea what that looked like. All I knew was that I don't want to be here anymore. I don't mm. want to be this person anymore. Mm. And that was enough to get up and go do something, um, which ended up being kind of a series of like somewhat random phone calls, um, with, uh, either coincidence or the universe, depending on your belief system. <laughs> yeah. um, and it was a series of phone calls that ultimately led me into a classroom where, where I started learning things like life coaching and mm. neurolinguistic programming and behavioral profiling and learning about, who we are as people, how we come to be who we are and the values, the beliefs, the rules, sort of really pulling apart what makes us who we are as a person. And I spent 18 months in that um, learning environment and as well as learning, while I was learning like, oh, there's this information at the front of the room, that's very interesting, I really integrated that and used that time to redefine my identity. Yes. Um, And so that gave me the opportunity. So now I sort of talk about, you know, that, that box that you've carried from house to house to house. And you're like, I don't even know what's in this damn box anymore. I just keep bringing it. Every time we move, I bring this box. It just says like junk on it, you know. And that 18 months was really about opening that box and going, right, what is actually in here? Mm. Oh, I don't want that anymore. Turf that, you know. Oh, this is useful. I'll keep that, right? And so it was looking for, you know, beliefs that I had that were useful, then I would keep them. If it was something that was making my life harder, um, get rid of it, make a new one, right? So it was really that sifting process and um, taking time to, redefine things I remember my teacher said um you know she asked us at the front of the room she said what do you what do you want you know what do you want in life how do you want things to be and I I was completely stumped I was like I don't I don't know all all I'd been focusing on what I realized my entire focus had been on what I don't want I don't want to be tired. I don't want to be angry. I don't want to be snapping at my kids. I don't want this. I don't want this. And of course we now know, I now know where your energy goes, grows, right? So when you're focusing on all the things you don't want, you're manifesting more of that. Right. So, you know, I'm more tired and I'm more sick and I, you know, I had concurrent, uh, fibromyalgia and heaps of other like there was a lot of physical toll of my mental health challenges as well because surprisingly, you know, you're all one human. So um so it was about turfing the stuff that I didn't want anymore and creating new systems, new beliefs, new rules, new values mm-hmm. that were going to help me become the person that I did want to become. So first it was about dumping the old yeah. and then constructing the now. And then moving forward into the vision for the future. Yes. Because I wasn't that person anymore, sort of running on autopilot that you get from your parents and, yeah. you know, every, school teachers and all that sort of stuff. Um,
0: yes, 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 Lisa. That so, is absolutely amazing. Amazing, amazing. I just want to touch base with you because I know that you are very, like, um, time-stretched and there's so many little nuggets that I just want to pull from you <laughs> before we kind of run out of time. But I wanted to ask you, how did you find that, you know, you you talked about that dissociation and the moments of those four months of sitting on the couch or having those like, you know, I always say it's kind of like people explain it like being on autopilot where they watch a movie and they're kind of out of out of the movie, looking down on it with a bird's eye view. Mm-hmm. So how, now reflecting on it, I guess, did you see that there was a big impact that it had on your relationship and your relationships with your
1: kids? Yeah. Massive, massive. Like, and that's, that's what it's all about, right? Like it's, it's about family. And um, my uh, stepkids, their mom had um, left when they were very young So they already had a whole lot of stuff around that, um, which I was being very, I was very mindful of and being very careful not to sort of re-traumatise them in any way. Um, My relationship with my husband, it's funny because at the same time as we were very, we were very disconnected, we reconnected in a different way. But the way that we were connected was in a very, Like he essentially became my carer, Mm. which was what I needed at that time. But I also resented the shit out of it and was annoyed at myself that that's you know I'm so I'm so broken right With my Mm. self-talk you know that he's he's got to look after me and it's you know because I was inconsistent with my antidepressants so I would crash and I wouldn't shower and I was crying and screaming all the time and you know I was just an absolute mess Um, and I needed him to be a carer but that's not a, a dynamic that I would want to keep in my relationship beyond that intense period. Um, And so we really had to, once I sort of came out of that foggy haze, um, we had to, again, like redefine our relationship and we've spent the last, um, it's pretty good now, I mean, that's been about seven years or so, but we spent probably two or three years figuring out how to be equals again in our relationship rather than one person looking after the other person and Mm -hmm. switching roles is to sort of find that balance again. And in terms of my kids, I was a flat out shit ass parent for a couple of years. Like I was horrible. Um, And it wasn't, wasn't they weren't being anything but kids, but my capacity to, manage myself and all of that had just gone out the window so I was really not a great parent for uh, 18 months or so and that was one of my real drivers in that 18 months of healing that intense healing was who do I want to be as a parent how do I want to parent Um, and fortunately um, my relationship with all three of my kids is amazing and I'm very lucky um they're in their early 20s the two big ones now um so you know we we went we navigated that tricky teenage <laughs> stage with the two of them yeah. um, and my baby's 10 now so oh. you know he was he was two when we were doing that and i'm grateful that there's a lot of stuff he doesn't really remember me at my worst yeah. Um, yeah. even though i know that there's probably some subconscious stuff there, but you know, when I ask him about it, he's like, "I don't ever remember you being like that. Like, you're just the best mom." And I'm like, "Okay, well, all right then, if you say so." Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but it also really profoundly changed the education I got, the learning I got, mm. and you know, the coaching and NLP and learning how to manage my own state and all, understanding human behavior and emotions and stuff better really changed dramatically the way that I parented and the way that my husband parented a little while later because we like everyone else usually was sort of running on well either what did our parents do I'll do that or what did our parents do I'm not fucking doing that right like we just of <laughs> yes. the two either, you either either you either go with it or you swing the other way so <laughs> you know that's how we were sort of doing things before and we came from very different parenting styles. Mm-hmm. So he grew up in a very strict environment. Mine was certainly not that strict. So, and we had a lot of clashes. Um, and so, adopting a lot of the um, the learnings that I got at at school, I guess you know, like coaching yeah. school, yeah, um, has helped us find the same page. And so we're much more consistent and in agreement about how we're approaching stuff. Like there is, you know, you know, he should eat everything on his plate, he should, you know, versus he should be in charge of how, you know, when he's not hungry yes. and when he's hungry. Um, you know, we have, those, we, have, yeah, we have those discussions. But our, our general philosophy around it all is is on the same page, which makes it a lot, a lot easier to run a household Amazing. and, and to parent.
0: Oh my God. I got chills when you spoke about um, your experience with those 18 months and being disconnected with your kids. Because again, like I spoke to you before, I resonated with that so much and the vulnerability that you give, I just honestly acknowledge you so much because there are parents that are pretty much going through the same thing but we just don't know how to navigate that space or we don't know that it's okay to not be okay if that makes sense
1: and yeah and that you're not the first person to go through and you won't be the last last. like I think you know it's easy to compare apples and oranges um and particularly with social media um we get such a perspective like (laughs) you're always you're always imagine that in behind the doors of everyone else's household they're doing a bang up job right like will <laughs> yeah. you judge yourself and be like I bet everyone else is so good and they're harmonious and we assume the best in others and the worst in ourselves yes. and yeah and so you end up with this disparity where you're like I'm pretty sure everyone's a better parent than I am right <laughs> but every but everyone's thinking that right yeah. so I think it's really um it's great what you're doing and and highlighting the there's a lot of you don't know, see in seeing people's houses, but there's a lot of them, you know, making shit up as they go along, or juggling, or changing their mind, or being inconsistent. You know, when you're like, okay, no, I said, I said no iPad, and then you're like, fuck it, just oh, go on iPad alone for ten, you know, like it, that's that's really common and it's not just happening in your household it's happening you know up and down your street in your neighborhood if people are just doing their best just the same way that you're doing your best and it's okay to not be totally nailing it every time and you know posing on Facebook you know with you like the perfect family photo you're like oh you can never get one of those like it's you know (laughs) it's because it's You know, people used to say to me, oh, you eat so healthy. I see you posting all these salads. And I'm like, yeah, like I don't post fish and chip night, you know, like can't be asked tonight. We're getting pizza, right? Like it's important to understand that what your perception of other people is is biased, it's warped. And whereas Mm. you know all your gory, messy, ugly bits, you don't know that of theirs. So that's what I mean by apples and oranges. Yes. Oh my
0: gosh, Lisa, I wish I could keep you on here forever. I could talk to you for years. There's just so many things that I would just pull out of you. But I wanted to ask you. I'll come back. You you have to, you have to. Because I know people will resonate with a lot of things that you've said today. But there are two questions that I ask people that come on. So I might ask you one. And then that means you definitely have to come back to answer the next one. Okay. Okay. So the first one is, if you were to give one advice to yourself when you were 18 or 20 or young what
1: would that one advice be um trust your gut hmm. don't second guess it in your head your your gut knows um i think that probably would have helped avoid some situations that i'd rather have not have gone through, like I've gone through them and that's fine. And I've, you know, I've had the learning and I've had the experience and it's all got me to where I am now, which is, is a good thing. um, But I think if someone had taught me or someone had told me earlier that, that, that little niggly feeling, that little like, mm, I don't know about the trust that go that way. Yes. Because yes. I, I doubted that and I would pull it up into my head and overthink it mm-hmm. and justify the wrong decision pretty pretty often.
0: And I think a lot of us do that. Why do we not trust our gut?
1: Mm, that is definitely a, a whole <laughs> other discussion yeah, I
0: was gonna say. Because there's so many people that say, I knew I shouldn't have done it, but I did yeah. it anyway and it screwed me up it really fucked me yeah. up and I'm like I'm not I'm always sitting there like you know I'm not surprised but I'm not judging in the same sense it's just like yeah. that gut feeling is
1: everything it, it, it is absolutely and look there's all sorts of reasons that we can get trained out of trusting mm. them by people around us we are um massively massively tribal creatures as human beings and that um you know peer pressure wanting to fit in uh going along with everybody else being accepted all that stuff is a really big motivator particularly in you know teen and and you know probably up to 30 you know that that influences our decisions heavily well, yeah. what's everyone else doing well, what do you guys want to do yeah all right okay we'll go all right yeah i'll come with you right even though you're like mm, i should go home right yeah. um <laughs> I've, got, I've got an exam tomorrow right? i should probably not come out um yeah so that pressure that's like in our dna to be part of a collective is one of the reasons that we can talk our way out of our gut yeah
0: totally oh i love this i love it so much thank you so much lisa i know that you've got to go so where can my audience find you i know you're on instagram what was your tag name um instagram
1: it's just lisa underscore westgate underscore yeah and then you've got your uh, website It's instagram yeah or misfit hub it's dot com Um, and of course on Facebook, you can just search for the misfit hub, um, the group it's healing and evolution for freaks, weirdos and fringe dwellers. (laughs) Um, so if you identify as a bit of an oddball or a black sheep or someone that's kind of not quite fit in, um, through your life and you've gone through some stuff and you're ready to release the past for good and live a life of zero fucks. That's what we're all about in the group. Yeah, um, so, you know, I'm a recovering people-pleaser myself. Mm-hmm. So I think um, there is freedom in being clear about who you are and, and what you want and moving towards that. Um, not, not. Ne- I mean, we still take into account other people. It's not about, um, you yeah, know, being dismissive is. of others, mm-hmm. but it's also about not compromising th- your vision. Totally. Oh. Thank you so much, Lisa. I am
0: so